Hey everybody and welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thanks for being with me here today. My name is Matt and if you like the show you can help me out by clicking the like or subscribe button. You can also help out the show by donating using the tip jar link in the description below. And I've also included a link for a Tastyworks account using my referral code. So if you're looking for a new broker, Tastyworks offers everything you need to get started. They let you do futures trading, options trading, even short selling if you really want to roll the dice on your account. So. Use my link in the description if you're looking to help out the show and you want to open a new brokerage account. So with that, I'm glad to be back and thanks everybody for all the support. It's been a busy last couple weeks, uh, fielding emails, talking to people. It's been uh, it's been good. So I appreciate that and please continue to share the show. It definitely helps me out um, with growing the show and I love to see that. So today we're going to talk about a couple things, a couple updates we've seen in the last couple weeks related to Biogen, Amarin, as well as Karyofarm that we heard today, and I'm recording this on the 22nd of June. And then the main story today we're going to talk about Actinium Pharmaceuticals, and I think if everything goes well with them, they could be a big play. Now there's some weird stuff around the stock, so we're going to touch a little bit on that, but I think that if the data continues to look as good as it has so far, they could really make a big change in the targeted radiation space. So we'll touch a little bit on that as well. But yeah, for me on a personal note, it's uh, it's been busy. Things are kind of getting back to normal here in San Diego. A lot of businesses have been opening up, so I've noticed that I actually have a bit more of a social life now. So that's uh, definitely been entertaining, kind of taking me away from the markets a little bit. But, you know, I'm here today to talk about some awesome biotech companies. So with that, let's just get into it. And the first piece of news I wanted to touch on is Biogen. And what we heard is that Biogen's Tecfidera patent 514 was ruled invalid by a U.S. district judge. And they closed Friday at 271, and they did see a little bit more of a dip early this week. As we've dealt with this already with Amarin, we're hearing that Biogen does plan on filing an appeal, but that appeal process can take up to a year. But what's different here is that we're actually expecting an at-risk launch. So Mylan has made it clear Mylan, the company that sued Biogen over this patent, made it clear that they're aiming for a November 16th approval date for generic Tecfidera. And they have already filed an ANDA with the FDA, which is the normal process by which a generic company has to get their medicine approved. Biogen did kind of expect this to some capacity because they did launch a competing drug to Tecfidera called Vumerity, and it is a little bit of a better safety profile. And they launched this just in case the Tecfidera patent battle did go south because I believe there's other lawsuits coming up against this patent. But Biogen launched Vumerity in the hopes that they'll be able to shift the revenue they've been getting from Tecfidera onto Vumerity and then maintain this juggernaut status since Tecfidera is their biggest selling medication and it's about $4 billion per year they generate in this medicine so they're going to hope to replace that with something. And the loss of this patent protection means that generics are going to come on the market pretty soon. And when I did my analysis using a model that I had created, if I halved the Tecfidera revenue, their stock price would go down to around 230 So I think what's going on here is investors are pricing in the potential of Vumerity to take a lot of that revenue away from Tecfidera, which would help Biogen. Either that or the odds of Biogen winning an appeal are there. So the stock is pricing in some upside despite the loss that they suffered. And the other thing that's going on with Biogen is they are planning to file the Aducanumab BLA in Q3 of 2020. And Aducanumab, the indication being Alzheimer's disease, which is a very, very big patient population. 
So I think there is also some support for the stock, given that Biogen could potentially get an Alzheimer's drug approved, if not late this year, then early next year. And I know there's a lot of controversy over the aducanumab data. I think personally it's a coin flip on whether or not the FDA is going to approve it. I think the, sh the data is very shady and uh, it shouldn't be approved. But strange things have happened with the FDA before, so it is possible that they could lobby the FDA enough to get it approved. The next company I wanted to touch on is Ameren. And just a little piece of news that we heard is that Ameren settled with the generic company called Apotex, 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 and this settlement would keep them from launching a Vasipa generic until August 9th of 2029. And I saw a lot of excitement around this just because the logic being that if Apotex thought that Ameren was going to lose the appeal, they wouldn't bother going through the motion to do the settlement agreement, keeping Apotex from going to the market until 2029. But if I were to think about it logically, I assume that the lawyers b between Ameren and Apotex have been in discussions for months by now, and that the failure of Ameren to defend its patents just happened to go against Ameren, and Apotex was not expecting that. So they ended up filing the settlement agreement anyway, but I think that if Ameren is not successful in their appeal process, I imagine Apotex Apotex is going to be able to file a generic before this 2029 date. So to me, this is neither a positive thing nor a negative thing. But, you know, I'm still holding all my shares and we'll look forward to that appeal decision coming up later this year. The last thing I want to talk about before our main story is Cariofarm. And what we heard today is that Expovio was approved for third line DLBCO. And I talked about them last video. And I have to do a couple clarifications because I did mess up on this company and I also took a position. But before I get to that, uh, this approval was pretty much priced in. The stock moved up a little bit on the news, but then it sold off right away. The things to look forward to is liposarcoma data in late 2020. And then we're also going to hear an FDA decision on whether or not they're going to get approval for their Expovio drug in earlier line multiple myeloma. And this takes me to what I kind of messed up in my last video, which is Cariofarm is also seeking to get approval for their drug Expovio in earlier line multiple myeloma. And in my model, I had only considered them as sticking to fourth line or higher multiple myeloma patient population. So if they're able to get approval for earlier lines, third line, even second line, I think we're adding a lot more potential market value to the company. And it's for those reasons, as well as the fact that we saw a bit of a sell-off in the last couple weeks, that I felt comfortable taking a position. So I think I have around 20 shares, my average price in the 16s or something, and we're trading just under uh, 20, I believe. But that was my mistake, and I don't know why. I just kind of blew by the multiple myeloma data. I didn't really think they were doing much of it. But, you know, that's why the attention to detail is very important. And if you miss that kind of simple stuff, it, uh, it could prevent you from taking a position and potentially making a profit. So that's a lesson for everybody out there. But with that, let's get to our main story for today, which is a company called Actinium Pharmaceuticals, ticker symbol ATNM. And now they closed on Friday at 38 cents a share. I think on Monday they closed at 41 or 42, giving them around a market cap of 144 million. And I say around because they've done two offerings in the last couple of months. So the total number of shares outstanding isn't entirely clear to me, but I estimated at around 380 million. So if you do that math, it's around 144, maybe 150 million dollar market cap. 
So given that they've raised that much money in secondary offerings, they have a net cash as of the end of 2019 of 4.7 million, but add to that the two raises and we get a net cash position of $60.7 million. And then one other piece of data I think is important to look at is the net loss for 2019 is $21.9 million. So you break that out by quarter, we're looking at around five, five and a half million dollars per quarter that they're losing. And what they're trying to do is commercialize antibody radiation conjugates, or ARCs, and they're doing this as a replacement for total body radiation. So how you can think about this is rather than forcing patients to go into a machine that irradiates their entire body non-specifically, instead you can tag an antibody with a radioisotope that will selectively pick cell types or whatever the antibody is reactive to and it'll only affect those cells specifically. Now there's a lot of advantages to this and the, the radiation sector has improved over the years such that they can get beams that are very targeted to only certain parts of the body. But in my opinion, I don't think it would be as specific as something like this, where you're specifically targeting a protein on the cell surface. So the, the reason for this is that when you do total body radiation, there's a lot of side effects associated with that. And there's even certain patient populations that are excluded from these radiotherapies because they're too toxic to the body and they can lead to mortality events. So all that is to say that these total body radiation practices are necessary for all sorts of different things, including bone marrow transplants, autologous cell therapies, as well as other softer techniques such as lymphodepletion for other treatments such as CAR-T. And like I mentioned, a lot of the side effects associated with total body radiation might be superseded if they can just use this new technology that they have. So I could see this completely potentially replacing the need for whole body or, you know, beam specified radiation to the body. And just to mention some of the side effects, uh, radiation tends to have an effect on rapidly dividing cells. So this is a big impact on fertility and it also affects the gut epithelium. So those are just two compartments that you see a lot of side effects associated with these treatments. So to get a little bit more detailed on radiation treatment and what it's used for, the two primary goals of radiation treatment are this. The first one is to provide adequate immunosuppression during a bone marrow transplant, stem cell transplant, or CAR-T, even though to a lesser extent it's a, it's a softer conditioning regimen. But basically when you're doing these treatments, you're infusing foreign cells into the body. And one thing that happens when you do that is your immune system instantly attacks it and raises an inflammatory response or a foreign attack against these cells. So what radiation treatment can do is it can suppress the immune system such that those foreign cells can engraft properly and that's what you want when you're doing these therapies. So the second thing that radiation treatment does is a lot of these cancers or a lot of these diseases that are happening include a lot of deleterious cells that are rapidly dividing. So the radiation therapy tends to harm those cells preferentially. So you're eradicating the disease all while promoting that engraftment process of happening through the immunosuppression. So those are the two main benefits of radiation and I think why it's been developed and commercialized in such a way that it's so common with cancer treatment. Now, radiation treatment can be administered in, in three kinds of ways. And it's really only two, but the third one is related to this in the case that we're talking about actinium. So the first one, which is the strongest, is called myeloablative therapy. 
And what this does is it ablates rapidly dividing cells, especially immune cells and bone marrow cells. And then one thing to note is that when somebody says myeloablative therapy, it might not just be radiation, it could be a high dose of a chemotherapeutic that is also able to lead to the same outcome as total body radiation. But this therapy is relatively strong. Not every patient is able to do myeloablative therapy. Older patients in particular are restricted from doing these kinds of heavy therapies because they can be so devastating from a side effect standpoint. So there's a lot of side effects associated with it, but it does lead to success when it comes to bone marrow transplants, etc. What researchers found out is that you can lower the dose of chemotherapy or the dose of radiation, and that leads to not total eradication of bone marrow cells, but you still are able to suppress the immune system enough that you get engraftment in certain patients. So this is called reduced intensity conditioning. And basically what's in the name is that you just lower the dose on either the radiation or the chemotherapeutic, and more patients are then able to do this therapy, and then there's fewer risks of conditioning-related complications, and it does increase the patient population that could do these therapies. Now the last one is specific to lymphocytes, but it's called lymphodepletion, and this is a technique that's required in CAR-T therapies, and all it does is it depletes the T and B cells specifically, and this is in preparation for adoptive cell therapies. So this is an even lower dose, I would say, regimen than the reduced intensity conditioning, and it specifically targets just the lymphocytic lineage when we're looking at the breakdown of the immune cells, and I'm not going to get into that, but... Basically, what Actinium is trying to do is jump into this market by offering a targeted radiation solution such that the effects are very strong, but you don't get the side effects associated with total body radiation. So seemingly, it would open up the patient population where before, a lot of patients might not be able to take this therapy, but if the radiation dose is targeted at only, say, CD45 cells, maybe these older patients could then qualify for these treatments. So that's kind of the goal behind it. So there's two ways we can kind of look at it when we're looking at a model. And to just talk a little bit about their first product before I get into that, they're starting to look at bone marrow transplant for AML. And what they're calling this drug is Iomab-B or Apimistamab. And what this is is a CD45 antibody conjugated to iodine-131. So that is the effector molecule that's going to irradiate the cells that are, are kind of located through the body by attaching to CD45 expressed on the cell surface. And for those who don't know, CD45 is a very broadly expressed cell surface receptor on immune cells. It's indiscriminate within immune cells, but it's on mostly all immune cells. So one thing that you can find in their corporate presentation is an estimate of 21,000 bone marrow transplants that are conducted per year. And now, one thing that I'm not considering here is the potential for this therapy to open up the bone marrow transplant market because more patients might be able to tolerate bone marrow transplants because before they might not qualify for myeloablative therapy, whereas here they might actually qualify for it because there's fewer side effects. That's kind of the goal. So if we're using the 21,000 as kind of a bottom here, and we estimate around a $40,000 cost for this treatment, I can estimate here that there might be a peak revenue of $630 million if we assume only 75% market penetration. So that's kind of what I'm going on for my model. And the cost where I came up with this is a paper that I've linked below, and I'll put it in the description if you want to look at it. It compares the cost between non-myeloablative therapy and myeloablative therapy. 
and the difference between it was around forty thousand dollars and I think that's in the ballpark of reasonable when we're talking about a therapy like this that could potentially have a better side effect profile than the already existing treatments. So it's definitely just an assumption and with all your models, you're gonna have to make assumptions like this, but giving a peak revenue of 630 million compared to what their market cap is right now, which is around 150, I think that if they see positive data in phase three, we could see the stock easily move up to support a market cap like that. So that's kind of what I'm basing my model off of and why I think the risk reward is in that favor. So we'll talk about that a little bit later. But the other thing we need to consider is whether or not they're gonna see positive data. And what they're doing is a phase three, what they call Sierra trial. And the data is expected in Q4 of 2020 with a potential ad hoc interim analysis in Q2 of 2020. So Q2, there's only about a week left. So if we're gonna see some kind of interim analysis, it should come relatively shortly. The primary outcome for this study is durable, complete remission at 180 days. The secondary endpoint is one year overall survival. And now they do have some interim data and we're gonna go through that in a second. And what they're looking at here is the number of patients that are potentially evaluable for durable, complete response. And what this means is the only way patients are evaluable here is if they've had a successful engraftment and engraftment is a good predictor of complete remission. So because they're not at that 180 day threshold yet, all they can show us is potential patients that are evaluable for durable complete response. So I hope that makes sense, but we'll, we'll go through this in a little bit more detail. But what they're showing is that 100% of patients using IOMAB-B have had successful engraftment versus only 29% of controls. And what they're showing on the left is that compared to controls, the IOMAB-B treated group has a six times greater number of patients that had successful engraftment. And what that means to me is that the IOMAB-B was able to deplete the existing cells that were there, the bone marrow cells, or really any cell that expressed CD45, such that there was engraftment that was able to take place in these patients. And what also that means is that there's probably very minimal disease left of AML. And that's really what you want in these, in these trials. Now, I am kind of extrapolating from that because we do need to see the actual data as well as the one-year overall survival. But for success to occur here, what Actinium is looking for is two times the control arm. And as of 50% enrollment, they currently see six times greater number of patients that are valuable for durable complete response. And in the middle panel here, what they're showing is what happened with engraftment then what happened at one year overall survival, comparing both IOMAB-B as well as standard of care. And in each one of these studies, IOMAB-B did double or better compared to standard of care for one year overall survival. So remember, that was the secondary endpoint. The primary endpoint is going to be the number of patients that had a durable complete remission. So that's going to be the main endpoint we want to look at, but also seeing this is very encouraging. So because they're going to do an ad hoc interim analysis, there's a chance that we could see some data relatively soon on whether or not there was a durable complete response difference between IOMAB-B and control. And I think there is a nice chance that we're gonna see positive data here. And mixing that with the potential risk reward that we're seeing, I think makes Actinium Pharma a nice investment in the short term. Now, I, I focused on their phase three Sierra trial right now, but they are looking at other indications, even though a lot of these are very early clinically. 
So one thing that they're doing, especially with Iomab, is looking at its use in HIV-related lymphoma. So a very like niche thing, but I think this is in collaboration with an investigator at UC Davis. So what they're going to do is use the Iomab treatment to deplete the stem cells and the lymphoma cells, and then they're going to infuse gene-edited CD45-positive hematopoietic progenitor cells and hope to replace those negative cells with these gene-edited cells such that they are not able to be infected by HIV. And this is all a lengthy explanation to say that this would also be amenable to a treatment like this. The readout for this trial isn't going to be until the first half of 2021, so I'm not really looking at this as a potential investable uh, catalyst just yet, but just to say that they are looking at other things related to, say, AML. Now, another thing they've talked about is adoptive cell therapies. So they could be using this for tumor-infiltrating lymphocytes or CAR-T, etc. There's a lot of these things that are coming out now. And now they don't really have a trial set up for this yet, but they are just kind of talking about it and saying that it could be useful, which I agree, but it would be nice to see them kind of move forward in that area. The other product that they're commercializing is something called Actinimab A. And rather than CD45, this is a CD33 antibody, and it's conjugated to actinium. Get it? Actinium, like the name. 225, alone or in combination with other therapies. What they're studying this drug for is in myelodysplastic syndrome, as well as relapsed or refractory AML. And now, the one that I'm more excited about is the relapsed and refractory AML, because they're looking at it in combination with two regimens. One is CLAG-M, just a very weird name, but it stands for specific drugs that are used to help out with patients that aren't left with many options. So CLAG-M or Venetoclax. And now what I'm showing here is the specific trial they're doing with Actinimab A and CLAG-M. And these are early phase one trials. I think this, this might just be interim data or a very small trial, and they're trying to reproduce this or... We're going to see full data probably later this year, but what they've seen is that CLAG-M on its own was able to lead to a 54% overall response rate, and then when they added actinimab A, they were able to bring that up to 86%. So what this suggests, mostly because the actinimab A group led to a 0% overall response rate, is that actinimab A as well as CLAG-M can synergize in these patients to make the treatment much more effective than if only CLAG-M was used alone. So there's also data with actinimab A and venetoclax, and check that out in their corporate presentation. I'm not going to go through it today. But I do think that this is also another nice indication that they could get if they're able to see positive data. And we should see follow-ups on this in late 2020, but their timeline wasn't abundantly clear for me on that. So my verdict on this is a buy, and I say reluctantly here in the presentation because there's a couple weird things about the stock that I'm going to talk about now. But like I mentioned, I think the positive phase 3 data has a good risk-reward given the relatively big patient population that's out there. And I think what's not being appreciated is that if the side effect profile is nice, they should be able to garner a larger patient population than 21,000 patients per year that are currently undergoing bone marrow transplant. So. I think that that could be a really big thing for the company. On the negative side, if the data does not look good, they do have a cash on hand of around $50 million, so I would expect the stock price to get cut in a third. But if they are successful, I could expect the stock to maybe 5x what it is right now. So for that reason, I think it's worth it to buy in hopes of seeing good data between now and the end of the year. 
Now, the things that make me a little weird about the company are that they did do two offerings within two months. And it's not very clear to me why they did that. You know, why wouldn't they just make it one big offering where they kind of surprised the stock rebounded so quickly? And did they not expect they would need that much money to finish these trials? So that's kind of a weird thing that's made me a little bit suspicious. Another thing is that their Q1 earnings report has still not been released. And we're coming up to around 120 days after the end of Q1. And I believe there's SEC rules that require companies to report after only 60 days after the quarter ends. So that's another weird thing that we've not seen. And I don't know what's going on, but we haven't really seen any details related to that. So that's something else that's kind of weird. And then the other thing is there's relatively low institutional support. Now, I don't often talk about institutional support, but I think it might be something to consider. And I'm using this data from fintel.io. They have good public data, and a lot of it is free, but you could also pay for a subscription. But only 4% of institutions have a position in Actinium. And a couple of these notable groups are BlackRock. They've recently increased their position, as well as another group called Renaissance. So it's nice to see them increase their position in the short term, but the fact that only 4% of all the shares are owned by these hedge fund groups who do a lot of due diligence doesn't really put a lot of confidence in the company. So that's not a great thing also. And then lastly, the AML studies, the relapse and refractory AML studies with Actinimab A, they've not been given very clear timelines. So that's something that I don't prefer to invest in a company that way. I would rather them have very clear, rigid timelines that they provide to us in their corporate presentations. But you know, given all of these negative things, I do think that it's worth the risk reward. So for that reason, I'm taking a small position. So for the next two weeks, I think the main stories are going to be the continued COVID-19 situation. You're hearing a lot in the media about a, a second wave that's coming. And I know specifically California, Arizona, and Florida seem to be increasing in their number of cases. Now, it's tough to actually play these because I don't think we're going to see a USA broad shutdown. It might be that Arizona just shuts down for a couple weeks, then they get back to it. Or what we saw last week was, I believe California is mandating face masks in public. So governments might try to do these other ways to prevent them from shutting down the economy entirely, because I think they've seen how big of a deal it was to really shut down the economy. So I think it's tough to really play COVID-19 second wave in like a broad way that you're going to just short the market and expect it to fall. But today we did see the XBI hit like 12. So we're at all time highs with the XBI, which is fantastic. But I don't know what it means. And the Federal Reserve intervention isn't helping things either. So the other thing in the next couple of weeks, uh, civil unrest continues to escalate. I'm not going to say too much more other than, you know, it hasn't seemed to have an effect on markets yet. But you know, if a Democrat does happen to get elected in the fall, that's something to be mindful of. I know the healthcare sector, biotech stocks usually don't do well if the anticipated news is that a Democrat's going to win. And I know Biden's been relatively corporate friendly, but it's something to be mindful of. So that's what I'm looking forward to in the next couple of weeks. And to just do a quick portfolio wrap up, I mentioned on Twitter that I bought iAvance at 30.57, 10 shares of that. I bought 20 shares of Carrier Farm at 16.7, and you know they saw positive news today, and I think they're gonna be a good hold for a while, especially into that FDA decision for earlier line multiple myeloma. So I have not had a chance to put in my Actinium Pharma here, but I bought 1,000 shares at around 38, 39 cents. Overall, I'm looking at negative 8.2 on the year, and that is trailing the XBI by quite a bit, 
But, you know, there's still another six months left, and so there's a lot of time for me to catch up to the XBI and hopefully, uh, hopefully outdo it before the end of the year. Otherwise, volatility has gone down quite a bit, so we like to see that, and that does kind of make me feel more confident about being long, but the fact that the XBI is hitting all-time highs does make me a little bit nervous. But I'm holding strong, and that's pretty much all I got for you guys. So I want to thank everybody for watching. I appreciate all the support. Please keep emailing and hitting me up on Twitter. You can follow me at Matthew Lepore. And with that, I'm going to wrap it up. But thanks again, and we'll see you next time.